You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Appreciate those of you who prayed for me last week as we traveled up to uh, Snowbird. Uh, Lauren and I had a chance to go with Ben and Andrea. I had the chance to preach at their church up there um, and then had a quick turnaround to get back that night, but it, it was a good time to be up there. Good time to see people from Snowbird, good time to see uh, the Long family, and, and just a good time to uh, be able to uh, continue teaching some of the things that, that God has been uh, making me aware of through his word. Um, you'll remember last week we saw in the book of Habakkuk um, just a, a frustrated prophet who you know, has a hard time reconciling what God is doing um, and even perceiving him to be not doing things that he should be doing, right? Um, we saw that Ultimately, Habakkuk is frustrated over the injustices and the sin and the tolerance uh, of behavior in, in Judah, and he perceives that God doesn't seem to care about it, doesn't seem to uh, want to do anything about it, and so he's crying out to God to move and to act, and then God responds and says you know, that he's very much aware, um, and he is preparing Babylon to come and to deal with that sin and uh, that, that confuses Habakkuk even more because he feels like Babylon is worse off than Israel. And how could God use something as bad as Babylon uh, to do something good in Israel? And so, you know, we saw last week that oftentimes we are tempted to think that God is indifferent or inconsistent in how he deals with evil in this world. But he reassures us over and over in his word to keep trusting that his justice will be carried out rightly and timely. And so, you know, we keep trusting that God is working, that God is moving, that God does remain active, even when at times we feel like maybe he isn't. And so we said last week that Habakkuk was right in taking his concerns vertical to God, uh, that he doesn't complain to others. He takes it directly to God. We said that he was right to see evil um, and, and to have right expectations that things should not be the way that they were. Um, he was right in that he assumes that evil can only exist and operate if God allows it. He's right in that he understands that God has the power to fix it. So he has a lot of right perspective. Where he was wrong is that he felt like God didn't care and that God wasn't going to do the right thing to fix it. And that's where God steps in and helps him better understand who he is and how he works. And so we said last week to remember that God loves this world more than we do. He cares about wrongs done to us, um, and he's being very intentional to deal with them and that he uses surprising means sometimes to accomplish his ends. He doesn't always do it the way that we would have done it. Um, And most of the time, that's a good thing, right? That um, God chooses to work and move in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And so I challenged you last week, have you ever been, uh, or have you been accusing God of indifference or inconsistency in your own life? And how do the truths of Habakkuk speak to that? And so hopefully you've had some time uh, to ponder that. We come today to the book of Zephaniah. Uh, a three-chapter book, again, that uh, will allow us to cover, I think, uh, most all of it pretty substantially today. Hopefully, we're going to take some time to read through the entire book um, as we work through it. I want to try to point out to you some overview perspectives of it um, and then give you some points of application that we can walk away from as well. Uh, One of the things that we see in the book of Zephaniah is this concept of finding shelter in the Lord. Um, We know how important shelter is um, to our survival um, you know, for those of you that have been through the Dave Ramsey course, you know that as you're developing your budget, um, he talks about the importance of making sure that you're providing for your family in the area of food and utilities and shelter and transportation, that those are some of the, the key elements that need to be kind of worked out in the budget, that those things are taken care of, those things are provided for, because shelter is so important. Um, a lot of us in the church have been watching the uh, TV show Alone, um, and, and that's uh, a TV show where shelter is absolutely crucial to uh, the individual's survival. So the premise of the show is they take these people out, leave them in the wilderness, and whoever stays the longest uh, wins a half a million dollars. Um, and so they're responsible for finding their food, finding their shelter, creating those uh, opportunities. And uh, the more seasons I watch, the more I realize those that can't figure out the shelter piece uh, don't last very long. Um, and then the food piece is kind of what determines who can stay the longest after that. But you have a lot of people that go home in the first couple of hours even because they can't figure out the shelter piece in light of the dangers around, right? So shelter protects us from the exterior dangers, whether that's the, the, the elements of the weather, right? We want to be protected from the rain and the sun and the heat and the cold, uh, but we also want to be protected from 
potential dangers that could come in and harm us. And so in the TV show, the big dangers are bears and cougars and wolves. And um, if your shelter is not secure, you're not really sleeping at night uh, because you're worried of what is going to come and going to come and attack. And so shelter is obviously a crucial piece to our survival. Zephaniah talks about what it looks like to find the right type of shelter uh, on the day of the Lord, um, the ultimate day of the Lord, when, when Jesus comes and all of his wrath and fury towards sin and rebellion, what it looks like for us to be sheltered in his righteousness so that we can be guarded and protected and, and to make sure that our shelter is appropriate uh, for what is to come. And so we're going to see uh, some of that today. Our summary sentence, God tells us where all of creation is headed. And while it doesn't necessarily make the path easier, knowing God's plan does give us all we need to prepare our shelter and endure the bad while anticipating the good in all that he is doing. God tells us where all of creation is headed, and while it doesn't necessarily make the path easier, knowing God's plan does give us all we need to prepare our shelter and endure the bad while anticipating the good in all that he is doing. And so what we see here in the book of Zephaniah is God being committed to including his people in on his plans. Right? He doesn't leave us in the dark about where creation is headed. We get a great picture of what's to come in the future. Um, we've seen this in the prophets, that God is going to deal with sin and injustices. He's going to bring restoration to his remnant, right? He's going to bring salvation to his people. He's going to uh, recreate this world in such a way where all the things that we hate about it, all of the things that disappoint us, all of the things that hurt us, all the things that create sorrow and suffering is going to be eradicated, right? And so we get this picture in the prophets. Obviously, we get it even more so in the New Testament as God builds upon this revelation. And, and even in the book of Revelation, as we saw a couple of years ago, that um, all of this is heading toward a specific point. Um, and that point has been predetermined. This, this isn't something that we're hoping for, uh, we're, we're anticipating, but not really sure if it's going to come about. I mean, these are guaranteed promises that God has given to us. This is where creation is headed. Now, it doesn't necessarily make the path easier. It doesn't mean that we uh, won't endure difficulties on this path to that end goal, right? But because we know where everything is headed, it helps give us proper perspective. It helps us to filter some of the things that we experience in the here and now in light of what's to come. It helps us to endure some of the difficulties, some of the, the, the bad newses that we hear. Um, it, it allows us to process through that and to filter it through the fact that, that God is moving creation towards an end goal, an end goal that he's determined, an end goal that is good for us. And so as we get ready for that end, as we prepare our shelter to be ready for that great day of the Lord, we can endure the bad right now. We can anticipate the good in everything that he's doing because we're going to see that he remains active, even though at times he's accused of being inactive. For our kids, knowing God's plan helps us trust him while we wait. Knowing God's plan helps us trust him while we wait. What we see here in the book of Zephaniah is, uh, in the introduction, a um, clear identification of the timetable that we're talking about, of when Zephaniah prophesied. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, who was a king of, of Judah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So while he is a descendant of a king, he is not descending directly from the uh, the royal line. So that's why he's not a king here, okay? Um, but we get an idea of the time frame of when he's prophesying. He's living during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is prior to the Babylonian captivity. Uh, we're, we're talking about the same time frame as when Nahum is prophesying, prophesying towards uh, Nineveh and Assyria, that they're about to fall, that Babylon's going to come in and take over them. It's also what we saw last week with Habakkuk prophesying to Judah as well, that the Babylonians are coming. So all the same time period uh, when Zephaniah is operating as well. His name means Yahweh hides or Yahweh protects. Um, and so even in a book that is heavy on God's judgment, heavy on God's fury, um, heavy on his power and his anger, the title of the book reminds us that he's a God who hides and protects. Um, it describes God's ministry of protection for his faithful people when that day of his great anger arrives. So let's jump in. I want to read to you chapter 1, 
help you understand what's going on in chapter one. Then we'll do the same thing for chapter two, chapter three. We'll kind of summarize that real quick. Um, What do we learn about God from those three chapters? And then I'm going to give you some points of application uh, for us to take away from this, okay? It says in verse two, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. Kind of sounds like an undoing of what he did in Genesis chapter one, right? Um, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is the, the response of God to what Habakkuk was crying out for last week, right? Where, where are you, God? And so we know that godly people like Habakkuk see a lot of sin that they believe needs to be dealt with. So lest we think that God is being irrational in his response, the godly people of this time are crying out for this type of response from God. He says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The problem is, is that they are the sacrifice. And the the Babylonians are the guests here. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Right? These are the things that we've seen throughout these uh, minor prophets, right? That their their mistreatment of each other, uh, the deception and the oppression towards the poor, the violence and the fraud is going to be dealt with. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. These are areas set up around the temple. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on that day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, All the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. You read that and you're like, man, how could you ever describe God as good with all of this anger and judgment and fury coming upon the earth? And it's only when we filter this response through what we know is happening, through what we know God has revealed himself or how he's revealed himself, that we can see God's goodness in this, right? I was sharing at Red Oak last week. Um, you know, critics want to, uh, to attack God and attack the concept of God's anger. And yet what I was sharing last week is that most of the time we want an angered response towards things that we see happening that are evil, right? We want people to feel an emotional response when we feel it, if we see something happening that shouldn't be happening, right? Groups try to uh, solicit the the, the help of others to feel the impact of whatever it is that's impacting them that's enraging them. We want to be angry. We want angered responses. We want appropriate responses to evil. And that's exactly what God does. This is exactly what Habakkuk is crying out for. This is right and appropriate. And we have to remember that it's tempered with the fact that God has revealed himself as a slow to anger God, a God who's merciful and gracious. And so while the critics would say, man, I could never follow a God like this. I could never serve a God like this people who have maybe grown up in church, maybe even uh, attain the position of pastor who one day abandon the faith and leave, that they'll come back to criticism towards a God of the Old Testament who they say doesn't love like he should love, doesn't, doesn't care like the ways that he should care. And so I can't follow that type of God who's, who's angry towards sin. 
And yet we find ourselves angry towards sin all the time, right? If somebody does something to us that we don't like, it makes us angry. And we want justice to be served towards that individual. And that's exactly what God's doing here. He's responding towards Judah and Jerusalem. He comes in his glorious fury to put an end to idol worship, right? We see this this idea running through this chapter that God is responding to them loving creation more than the creator. It's Romans chapter one, right? It's them setting up things that are in this world higher than him, right? They've constructed these idols that they worship. Uh, They're they're giving their attention, their affection to it, their trust to it. Uh, We even see that Their violence and fraud has led to their financial gain, and and, and God says that their silver and their gold won't be able to deliver them on that day of the Lord, right? They've they've kind of established their their full trust, their foundation of of what they uh, believe can take care of them in the things of this world, and so he is responding. His anger is stirred appropriately towards this. We see that it results in darkness and disorder and chaotic and uninhabitable conditions. What, What we see here is a vivid picture that God is simply saying Jerusalem's world is coming to an end, right? They have established themselves on violence and crookedness, and all of that is coming to an end. Their false God worship will stop. We do know from history that when they come back from Babylon, God has really weeded out their affections towards the false gods of Canaan, um, that he has gotten their attention through acts like this, where they no longer start to, or they no longer keep coming back to this same dry well trying to find satisfaction from these false gods. These crooked economic centers, uh, these ruling offices of injustice, they're gonna crumble. And this is God's goodness saying, I'm not gonna allow the oppressed to be oppressed forever. I'm not gonna allow deception to keep going further. He says, I'm gonna come in and deal with this and, and Jerusalem's world is going to crumble. This great army is coming. We know that somebody is coming to invade and to attack them, but Zephaniah handles it a little bit differently, right? So last week we saw Habakkuk in his uh, prophecy, God specifically says Babylon is coming to do this, right? What we have in Zephaniah's prophecy, there's no mention of Babylon here. We, we don't have it mentioned at all in this book. We know context based on chapter one when Zephaniah is writing, but there's no mention of Babylon. And, and most likely the reason for that is that the author, Zephaniah, wants us to really see God's role in this punishment versus man's. Yes, Babylon is the tool, but God is the one orchestrating the judgment. God is the one bringing the, the wrath here. And so Babylon is a, is a piece of this, but ultimately Zephaniah wants us to see it's God who's doing this to his people. It's God who is stepping in and not tolerating. And again, this is what Habakkuk's crying out for. This is what we would be crying out for as well. Please God come, please God do something in response to what is occurring. Chapter two kind of shifts the focus from Judah and Jerusalem now to the day of the Lord on all nations, which includes Jerusalem, right? It says in verse four of chapter two, we'll come back to verses one, two, and three. Chapter four, for Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall, die, they shall lie down at evening." For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortune. So God talks about bringing judgment on the Philistines, right? This is a, a known enemy of Israel. For those of you that have read through the Old Testament before, you know that the Philistines have wreaked havoc on God's people for centuries. These are cities that made up the, the Philistine uh, group of people. Uh, these are gods that made up the Philistine uh, methods of worship. And so God says judgment is coming upon the Philistines. Then look what he says in verse eight. I've heard the taunts of Moab. And the uh, revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. 
You also, O Cushites, you, you shall be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in their midst, in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation shall be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist, right? You get this picture of God coming in and devastating these nations to the point where animals are kind of running wild in their cities, right? Like this is the ultimate, uh, what, what you're trying to avoid in the series alone, right? You want to keep your shelter in such a way where the animals can't come in and, and, and inhabit with you. And what he's saying is that, man, the whole thing's going to crumble where animals are just coming and going wherever they want to. Um, God's coming and he's bringing devastation towards sin. And the big sin here, not only the idolatry, but the pride that we see, right? That God responds to the prideful heart and he brings judgment. Um, These are accusations against some of Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Assyrians. What's interesting to me is even how uh, we can see elements of God's mercy and grace we can see the abuse of God's mercy and grace and how then God comes back and, and brings appropriate judgment. Think about the, the Moabites and the Ammonites, right? God touches on both of these people groups here. You may not have connected the fact that Moab and Amnon are the, the offspring of Lot and his daughters, right? So his daughters perform this, this evil act. They get pregnant. They have these kids, right? These are the daughters that were spared, from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, And so you have God's mercy. God saved Lot's family. And then you see the pride and the arrogance and the idol worship of Moab and Amnon. And what happens? God says, you're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah now. You're going to be judged when mercy was shown to you. You You did not respond to that. And now you are going to be judged for it. All are going to fall to Babylon. The nations here pictured are probably not significant in the names as much as the locations, right? Because you're saying, like, that's great that God judged the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites. Like, who cares? Like, that, that was so long ago. The way you see this on a map, though, is that they're hitting all four corners of a compass, right? And so I think the bigger picture here is that what God is saying is, I'm going to judge all the nations, the north, the south, the east, the west. Like, everybody is held accountable on that great day of the Lord. This just happens to be the nations that were known at that time, right? If, if Zephaniah was writing today, right, he would probably use other nations, right? That God is going to judge the Chinas and the Americas and the, uh, the European countries, right? He's going to hit the whole globe when the day of the Lord comes, his slowness to anger will expire and his hot burning indignation will come. That's what we see in uh, chapter three, verse eight. Look what it says. We'll start in verse one. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. This is God coming again upon Jerusalem. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon, my, upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. But then the hope comes, which has been characteristic of all the minor prophets, right? For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove your midst, uh, from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise, renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in and at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What we see here is that while judgment comes, purification and transformation is the goal here. He is ridding the evil so the righteous can come forth. All these nations that are being judged, they become this unified voice in the end that's calling on the name of the Lord. You see that? That after this punishment has come, there are people that are getting saved in the midst of this that come forth and are now part of God's family. I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This is God fulfilling the promise of Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, where he told Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. You are going to be a father who blesses the nations. How? Because Christ is going to come through you and and people are going to be saved through the Messiah. And so the nations are going to come to me. And we see that here at the end when this great day of the Lord comes. We see the outcasts, the poor, the broken being rescued restored and exalted in this new creative order. How do we get to this? How do we get to be a part of this? Let's go back to Zephaniah chapter two, verses one through three, the the part that we skipped. It says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you, who, uh, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He tells us to seek the Lord so that we can be spared from the judgment peace, so that we can be a part of this people group that endures to the very end, that gets to enjoy this recreated order where sin and injustices are removed and we get to enjoy him forever. We get to be quieted by his love. So what we see is kind of a double fulfillment here, right? We've got this day of the Lord coming upon Judah and Jerusalem with Babylon. Babylon's gonna come and judge them. But obviously we see a bigger day of the Lord kind of pictured here in Zephaniah as well. This is Jesus coming back at the very end when all these nations get dealt with and all these promises get fulfilled for his people. So this ultimate day of the Lord is what we wanna kind of look at today. Um, and what, what we're being told here is that the current state of affairs that we see today will be replaced by the Lord's intended order of things. What we see in Zephaniah is emerging of his justice and his love, right? Um, his, his justice in dealing with sin, but his love and that he doesn't abandon his people in the midst of that. He has a passion to rescue his world from human evil and violence. He's not going to tolerate our mistreatment of each other forever. He's not going to tolerate people mistreating you forever. He's not going to tolerate you having to, to succumb to, uh, to sickness and to death forever. Right? There's coming a day where we won't receive the phone calls with bad news. Like this will be done away with. Like he's coming to fix all that. He has a passion to rescue his world in a way where humans get to enjoy safety and peace together forever. And it's this unbelievable picture where where all the bad things are gone and we don't have to deal with them anymore and we don't have to respond to them anymore and we don't have to process through them anymore. They're just removed forever and we just get to enjoy him forever and it's a day that's coming. 
And what we see here in the book of Zephaniah is that the timing is intentional, right? It's imminent. It's not, it's not slow to come in a way where God's indifferent with it. It's not late. It's not early. It's near is what we're told in verse 14. It says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Like we're getting closer to it. Right? The New Testament says that we're closer to our day of salvation than when we first began. Right? It's, it's coming. It's coming quickly. Why has it not come yet? Because God's slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious, and he delays purposefully so that people can come to him. But it's a timing that's intentional. He has a set time when this happens. He has a set day when he will send Jesus to judge this world. Number two, the scope is universal. Right? It's going to cover the entire nation. It's going to cover the entire world. Um, and we know that Jesus even communicates that message to his disciples, right? As he gets ready to leave, he says, what? Take the gospel to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, because this is bigger than just Jerusalem. It's bigger than just Judea. It's bigger than just Samaria, right? Like the day of the Lord is coming on the entire globe. And for people to get ready for this day, for people to shelter properly, they have to know about this. They have to know about it. And so he tells his disciples, go and tell them about me. Tell them I'm coming. Tell them to submit to me. Tell them to be obedient to me. Tell them to seek shelter in me. And number three, the result is transformational. All the bads removed. Everybody that's left are saved people. Right? Imagine environments where you step into a room and you know everybody here is a Christian. Everybody loves Jesus and everybody's trying to serve Jesus. Not half, half is doing it and half isn't. Right? You don't ever have to go to work again where you have to work with unbelievers who, who talk in ways that sh- you shouldn't talk and, and treat people in ways that they shouldn't be treated. You don't have to worry about it anymore because the picture here in Zephaniah chapter 3 is there's coming a day where everybody's calling on the name of the Lord, it says. Everybody's seeking to serve him. Everybody's saved. Everybody's serving. There is no sin. There is no pride. There is no injustice. There is no lies. There are no deceits. There is no fear. It's this transformational work that God accomplishes. And so what we see is a plan that God has, a plan to manifest himself terribly by pouring out his wrath upon all the idolaters to purify a people from all nations who will call upon his name. That, that's what's the result of the day of the Lord. It's him looking terrible. He's coming in terrible judgment so that the righteous can be saved, so the righteous can be unified to call upon his name. And that's that's what the book of Zephaniah is about. That's what, that's what we see in this book in these three chapters. Is God responds like Habakkuk calls for, and he, he responds with judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, but he's going to bring judgment upon these other nations as well, lest Habakkuk or others cry out and say, how could you judge your people and not judge everybody else that's more evil than us? He's going to judge everybody. But he's bringing this great restorative-type recreated world order where, where all the bad is gone, and we enjoy him forever. So let's, let's see some application for us this morning. Number one, We need to find assurance in God actively working in the good and the bad. We need to find assurance in God actively working in the good and the bad. The criticism of the people of Israel is they've started to believe that God is absent-minded and is not intentionally doing anything in their life. It says in verse 12 of chapter 1, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. What's the perspective there that these people have developed? Well, it's a mindset that basically says they're responsible for all their own good. You know, they've worked hard for it. They've, they've um, achieved the jobs that they have. They've achieved the homes that they have. They've achieved the bank accounts that they have. Like, it's been hard work and effort uh, using the skills that they have to, to get the good that they now possess. This isn't from God. This is from me, right? And it also says that God won't do any ill, meaning that, there is no God that's going to bring punishment on me for any of my behaviors or my actions. Like, um, I don't have to worry about that. And so these people are disconnected from how God works, right? And if we're not careful, we'll fall into that temptation too of failing to see God's uh, work in our goodness, right? If we're not careful, we'll be pridefully prone to take credit for it ourselves. Uh, we will potentially uh, believe that God will never bring discipline into our life and then we possibly even begin to, to um, uh, criticize him for the bad that does come into our life as to, you know, where are you and, and why are you not working good, right? And so what we want us to see here is that, number one, God is the ultimate source of all the good we enjoy in this life. 
He's the ultimate source of all the good we enjoy in this life, which leaves no room for idols. We must never replace the giver with the gift. Obviously, we see in chapter 1 such a passion by God to make sure that we, we don't give our affection to idols. James chapter 1 reminds us that he's the source of every good gift that comes to us. James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And he's a good God that is the source of all of our goodness. Whether we're Christians or not Christians, right? Like all the good that is in this world comes from God. He causes it to rain on the good and the bad, right? He allows the harvest of the good and the bad to spring up, right? He allows good people and bad people to get promotions at jobs. He allows good people and bad people to have houses that shelter them. He allows good people and bad people to eat and to have utilities and to have all the things that we deem needed and necessary to live on this earth, right? He's the source of all these good things. The, the people of Israel had reached a point where they said, you know, we're, we're responsible for these things. We're the ones that deserve the credit for these things. We need to take assurance and find comfort in the fact that he's actively working. He's the source of our good. But number two, he's the intentional user of bad for the purpose of good in our life as well. He's the intentional user of bad for the purpose of good in our life. Right? We know this promise from Romans 8. Uh, that all things work together for good. We've also quantified what the good is, right? That we be conformed to the image of his son. It's not that just all bad things magically poof, turn into good things, right? It's that bad things conform us to the image of Christ, which is the ultimate good thing for us. Which means we don't ever need to mistake him for being indifferent or apathetic. He always remains active. And he always remains active. He's the source of good and the source of using the good or using the bad for the good. That's, that's the type of power that he possesses. We sang about that this morning. He has that type of power to be our shelter, to be our anchor, um, to give us good things and to use the bad that comes into our life for good purposes as well. We need to find assurance in God actively working in the good and the bad. Number two, we need to find shelter by submitting to him humbly and obediently. We need to find shelter by submitting to him humbly and obediently. You see this picture back in Zephaniah where in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we read this call for the people to seek God, to run to God, to humble themselves, to seek to be obedient. Because in chapter 3, we see a bunch of people who aren't that way, right? That, that they won't receive correction. They don't want to do the things like God does them, even though he's a model of justice. They continue to give themselves to injustice. Um, we find our shelter by running to him and submitting to him. You know, again, it's that picture that Rahab gives to us of, you're the God that I've offended. I don't run away from you. I run to you in hopes of being forgiven and finding my shelter in you, um, not away from you. And number one, he's, he's only, a merc- only a merciful God warns about his fury. Right? Again, the critic would say, Look at this angry God who, um, who, who's only wrathful, who, who overreacts to, to petty things, who, um, who, who, who has a temper. But you, you, you give into that, and, and you may even fall prey to agreeing with the critic. Many a critic has led a, uh, an unstable professing believer away from the faith with, with, with criticisms and arguments like that. Um, but all it takes is somebody simply stepping in and saying, do you realize this, uh, this temper tantrum God that you're trying to um, tell us about or trying to criticize is a God who warns about his anger, right? N- nobody's ever had a, a parent or a boss or a coach who, who's hot-tempered and angry and, um, you know, overblow situations bring warnings before they do that right? People that we consider to have an anger problem don't typically warn you before their anger comes. Part of the problem is their anger just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like they just get hot-tempered and and blow up over something, and you're like, whoa, where did that come from, right? A merciful God says, my anger is going to come. 
And if you will come to me, you can be sheltered from it and escape it. That's not a hot-tempered uh, God who overblows situations and, and has a temper towards uh, petty things. That's a God who says, if you don't fix things, if you don't get things right, my anger is coming. And it's going to take hundreds of years, potentially thousands of years for you to see it because I'm a slow to anger God. I'm merciful and gracious. Only a merciful God warns about his fury. His concern and his care come forth in his repeated warnings about what is to come. Number two, only the humble can find appropriate shelter from his fury. Only the humble can find appropriate shelter from his fury. Only place to find shelter is to find it with the one we've offended. What Zephaniah pictures for us here is that a humble seeker comes ready to admit where wrong has occurred, comes looking for righteousness because it's absent. Verse 3 of chapter 2, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Right? The implication here is that the humble have to come looking for righteousness because they don't have it themselves. Right? The gospel is the end of our pursuits for good works. Right? The gospel ends that. When we come in humility and repentance to Christ, what we are saying is, I don't have the righteousness that it takes to, to be before you. I don't have the righteousness that it takes to stand in the wrath of your fury. Right? He says, come seeking righteousness. Where are we going to find that from? We're going to find that from God himself. Right? He provides that through Jesus. We come seeking humility even because we don't possess that ourselves, right? It's Jesus who sets the example of humility that Philippians 2 tells us, right? It's he who tells us and shows us what it looks like to be humble, and we come claiming his humility. We come desiring that his humility would be applied to us. A humble seeker comes ready to admit where he's wrong, where that wrong has occurred. Secondly, a humble seeker comes ready to listen and respond to the commands of God. That humble seeker comes ready to respond to the commands of God. What we see in the, in the picture of these other people are people who don't do that. Right? In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, people who don't accept his corrections, people who don't do things the way that he wants them done, people who live as though there is no one else, chapter 2, verse 15 says, right? I am and there is no one else. We find shelter by coming to him humbly, with a desire for obedience, recognizing that we haven't been, that we need his forgiveness, that we need his mercy, we need his grace, we need his righteousness, we need his humility because we don't possess those things in ourselves. We find assurance in knowing that God is working in the good and the bad. We find shelter by submitting to him humbly and obediently. And then number three, we find hope not in what is passing away, but in all that is still to come. We find great hope not in what is passing away, but in all that is still to come. And we don't want to be people that try to hang on to the things of this world. We don't want to be people that, that want this world to endure. And when we come face to face with, with our own death or even the potential death of our loved ones, like our tendency is to think that if you can just get better, if you can just stay with us, then, then all's right in the world. It's not right? Like this isn't the end. And so as we see things passing away, as we see loved ones passing away, as we see ourselves getting older and starting to pass away, right? We don't become Indiana Jones from the third movie trying to find the fountain of youth, right? Which is a great movie, by the way. Um, there's no hope in, in that movie. There's no hope in finding that, right? But we don't want to hang on to this world. Can you imagine living forever in this world, Right? Can you imagine having lived from, from Old Testament times to now and all the injustices that you've had to witness, all the mistreatment and the violence and the death that you would have had to have witnessed? And we don't want that. Can you imagine if God just magically looked over all of us and said, you are now immortal. Nobody dies anymore, but everybody stays as is for the, for, for the rest of eternity. Can you imagine always having to deal with uh, violence, and even though it didn't lead to death, but just mistreatment and hurt and pain. Can you imagine um, deceit always being a part of your life, never fully being able to trust people? Right? The hope of what Jesus says is coming is that all of that's done away with. And for that to happen, this world has to pass away. 
but there's something inside of us that just wants to hang on to it because it's all we know. It's the best that we have for right now. But I want you to see this picture of what's to come, and it, it trumps everything that we've ever experienced in this life. Number one, our sins will be forgiven and our lives transformed. That's what we see in that back half of chapter three. On that day you shall not be put to shame because all of your deeds which you have rebelled against me, for them I will remove from your midst. You're proudly exalted ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix everything. The people that need to be removed are gonna be removed. The people that are, are my people are gonna be completely fixed, right? No more flaws in us, no more sins in us, no more letdowns in us. He forgives all of our sins because he's that type of God. Number two, our fears and our wants will be quieted by his love. Chapter three, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. I couldn't help but um, think about uh, Apollos and, and just the stage he's in right now where he doesn't fully understand what Lauren and I are doing behind the scenes to like take care of him, a lot of times I think he just thinks that we're indifferent and apathetic and don't care about him, right? And so he cries to try to get our attention, right? So Lauren may have him laying down for a nap and he may be awake in his bed and he's crying and screaming or whatever, but Lauren's preparing lunch for him, right? She's getting everything set up and ready. And so while he's back there thinking, my mom doesn't love me, my dad doesn't love me, like they've abandoned me to the darkness, we're, we're behind the scenes preparing all this good for him, right? And it's almost as though like he realizes that when you do finally show up, right? You come in and you scoop him up in your arms and he does this thing. And, I, and I've loved the quarantine time because I've, I think I have a relationship with him at this age that I didn't get to enjoy with my others because I was at home so much during this uh, six months to a year development for him. And, and so he saw me a lot more. And so he has a relationship with me. But there's, a, there's thing, this thing that he does when I scoop him up, oftentimes he will immediately stop crying and he just kind of buries his head on my chest. And it's just like quiet, right? He just, he just kind of goes quiet. And, you know, he's tired maybe, or he has all these wants and desires and needs. But there's just something about being in, in dad's arms. And the same is true for Lawrence. So I'm not taking credit for the only parent that can quiet our son, right? I'm just saying personal experience. I love being able to do this with him. Um, and that's why I keep telling Lauren, like, maybe we're not done having babies yet because I don't want this to, to be my, my, my last experience. Um, although I did experience Ben cuddling and holding Luke at C Group the other night, which was super awkward looking because Luke is a big boy now. Um, but they did have kind of a special moment on the couch at C Group uh, after we came in from the rain. Um, I can't imagine that Luke smells as good as Apollos does because there's something about a baby smell that just, I mean, it's just nice. Um, so I could still hold uh, my kids as they get older, but I love that baby young holding where man, he just kind of abandons all in my arms and he's quieted by my love. Um, and I couldn't help but think that that's what, what God is kind of promising here when Jesus comes back. You know, we're here in the darkness and, and at times we're tempted to cry and scream and think, why are you leaving me in the crib? Why aren't you coming to get me? Like, where are you? Kind of like Habakkuk, you know, why aren't you doing something? And then God, God kind of cries out from the kitchen, hey, I'm over here. I got Babylon cooking up here in the kitchen and we're about to deal with everything that you're upset about in your, in your bedroom, right? Babylon's about to come in there and wreak havoc, you know. I'm, I'm in here making lunch for you, right? You think that I'm not doing anything, but I'm here making lunch for you. Man, there's coming a day where we're going to be able to be scooped up into his arms and, and all of our cries and all of our wants and all of our needs and, and all of our hurts are going to be gone. And we're just going to be able to bury our head in his chest and we're going to be quiet, quiet from his love. And that's the day that we look forward to. Not some temporary healing here today, now. We look forward to this great day of healing, this great day of restoration that's to come. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, kind of echoes what we see in Zephaniah about how to, to prepare for this day. Second Chronicles 7, 14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. He's certainly going to come and heal our land. 
He's going to do it in fire and fury and judgment. But what he's done is he's warned us about it with ample opportunity to get our shelter ready. You know, in that Alone series, those guys get out there and they say, you know, winter's coming, the bad weather's coming, I've got to get my shelter ready. Night is coming and the bears will be out and the cougars will be praying. I've got to get my shelter ready. A merciful God tells us to get our shelter ready. He also tells us how to do it. We come humbly seeking to be obedient, seeking his righteousness, seeking his forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for the message of Zephaniah. We thank you that there's coming a day where we are going to be fully quieted by your love, that you're going to exalt over us. You're going to sing praises over us because of your love for us. What an unbelievable picture that you could take sinful man and love him to that extreme. God, as we move closer and closer to that day, we know that it is hastening fast. And we know the only way it can hasten fast is for this world to pass away. And so God, as we, as we deal with um, the grief and the sorrow that comes from loved ones who are sick and who may pass away before you come, God, as we see our own selves getting older and older, more and more tired. God, remind us that we too are passing away, but, but all that's okay because we don't want to live forever in this world. We want to live forever in the one that's to come. We don't want to stay in the crib. We want to have you come scoop us up in your arms. We thank you that you're preparing all this good for us behind the scenes. Pray that you'd, you'd help us to be patient now as we wait as we long for that day. Listen, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.